0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. Let's continue in worship as we open the scriptures together. And this week, we're turning to the book of James. This week and the next several weeks, will be in the book of James. If you have a Bible and are following along, um, James is tucked into the tail end of the entire scriptures. Um, So if you open up to about that much left, you'll probably hit Hebrews or Revelation. Those are the two biggest books at the end of the Bible. Um, James is just after Hebrews. And James is is just before Revelation. So that's kind of where it's tucked away towards the end of the New Testament. We don't know exactly who James was. He doesn't specifically identify who he is. Um, James was a very common name in the ancient world as it is today. And so we don't know precisely who he is by his name. It's likely that he is the brother of Jesus. We do know from the Gospels that Jesus had a brother Um, the son of Mary and Joseph, who was named James, a man who later became uh, what the Apostle Paul called a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. Um, So Jesus' brother James became a follower of Jesus and eventually became a strong leader in the church in Jerusalem. You know, Peter and Paul were sent out from Jerusalem, but James stayed there um, throughout his life, throughout his ministry, and helped uh, maintain that establishment. Um, it's likely who this author is, um, as prominent of a leader as James was and um, as influential as this la- letter came to be. It's likely who the author is, James, the half-brother of Jesus. James is writing to the church. He says there in verse 1, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. He refers to the church as the 12 tribes of the of the dispersion, likening the church to Israel, the 12 tribes, just as the Apostle Paul did in Galatians chapter 6. He referred to us as the new Israel because we are what Israel was supposed to be, God's people on earth, scattered throughout, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So James is writing to the church, and he offers all sorts of instruction related to the Christian life. You know, I've read biblical commentaries and biblical scholarship on James over the last couple of months leading up to these sermons. And one thing that's unanimous amongst these scholars is that there is no kind of unifying theme or structure, um, especially as opposed to the letter, of, uh, uh, the letter to Rome that the Apostle Paul wrote, Romans. It's very structured. Uh, Paul's argument is very tightly wound and you can sort of follow the logic in a clean way. That is not the case with with James' letter to the church. It feels much more random. It's hard to put a structure to it. And especially in these opening verses, it's just sort of rapid fire instruction related to the church on any number of things. But very interestingly, the first instruction he has to offer for the church, for us, relates to us walking through trials relates to how we view our suffering and God's purpose in it. So it must have been a big issue if it was the first thing that he wrote to the church and certainly it remains relevant for us today. So let's read these verses. James chapter 1, verse 1, only through verse 4. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. James, a servant of God, And of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith. Produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the first diseases recorded in human history was leprosy. There's an Egyptian papyrus document from 1550 BC that describes a person suffering from what must be leprosy. And within the biblical accounts from about that same time period, namely the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, we hear about people suffering from leprosy. This disease was so ravaging for so long that even some of the oldest documents in human history have recorded its devastating effects. And thankfully, over the last 50 years, doctors and medical researchers have been able to understand and treat leprosy with great effectiveness, but for millennia, leprosy's victims had their bodies and their lives ruined in a gruesome and shameful way. Many of you have probably seen at least pictures of a leprosy victim, but it appears as though their bones and skin just wither away. Skin sloughs off their faces, the Bones of their fingers and toes, especially, just seem to disappear, and they're left with deformed features and nubs for fingers. But in recent years, researchers have been able to discern what's actually happening to the body of leprosy victims, namely, they don't feel pain. There's some sort of disorder relating to certain nerve cells, such that leprosy patients' don't feel pain. So they may get a simple splinter in their finger that they never attend to because they can't feel it and the small splinter turns into an infection permanently damaging the muscle and tissue in their fingers. Or they may sprain their ankle badly from a small slip or fall but they can't feel the pain in their ankle, so they keep walking on it like normal, and it results in long-term damage to their ability to walk. Or even something as simple as blinking their eyes. Leprosy victims can't feel their eyes drying out, so they don't blink the appropriate amount, and this results in many of them losing their sight. So you may look at a leprosy victim and think, Man, that looks painful. But it's not. That's the problem, actually. They don't feel pain. They need to feel pain. Because pain has a purpose. Pain has a purpose in our body's ability to care for itself. Now, that's not how, all we, that's not how we always think of it, right? We feel pain and we think, This is terrible. I want to get rid of this as fast as possible. I want to avoid this. At all costs, pain is bad. When we say about someone that they are being a pain, it's not a compliment, right? Pain is bad, isn't it? Well, leprosy victims might have a different take on things, and we see here in the first few verses of James, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, that he too has a different take on things. Our tendency is to think that pain and suffering are all bad, something to be minimized and avoided as quickly as possible and at all costs. But both leprosy patients and James remind us pain has a purpose. And not just physical pain, but James here is going to reference in verse 2, quote, trials of various kinds that we encounter in life. Perhaps it's the trial of physical pain, but there are various kinds of painful trials that we encounter in life. And James is going to say that they all have purpose. And if we read further into James' letter, you can infer that the two most prominent trials these early Christians were facing related to poverty and persecution. So just kind of inferring from some different things James is going to say, it becomes clear that the majority of the church he's writing to is poor. And if you have or if you are living in poverty, then you know it is not easy. There are all sorts of difficulties and painful experiences related to it. So we can infer that poverty was a big issue and the other was persecution. Persecution for their faith. For many of these early Christians, becoming a Christian may mean being fired for their jobs. May have been why some of them were poor. Or it may mean being harassed by authorities. Or worst of all, perhaps, being ostracized by your family. So those were likely the two most prominent sources of pain and trial in these Christians' lives. Poverty and persecution But in verse 2, James doesn't identify any specific sort of trial that has purpose. He says we will encounter trials of various kinds and they all have purpose. They may be financial, relational, emotional, vocational, related to our jobs. They may be physical trials, psychological pain. But all of it, all of our various kinds of trial and pain have purpose. So how do you view the painful circumstances that come into your life? How do you evaluate suffering? What value do you place on suffering? Is it all bad to be avoided at all cost? Or do you understand and are you embracing the truth that pain has purpose? Well, James is going to help us do the latter. James is going to help us embrace God's purpose in our pain. And to do so, he gives us a command, a reason, and an encouragement. A command, a reason, and an encouragement in order to help us embrace God's purpose in our pain. So first, the command. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. So look once more at verse 2. James begins his letter, his opening instruction like this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So this word count is also sometimes translated consider. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So this word relates to how we conceptualize or perhaps even better, how we evaluate our trials and experience of pain. Is there any value? Is there any opportunity when we encounter trials? James says, yes. Such that we, we should consider it all joy. Now it's worth mentioning here that James is not saying to count it only joy when you encounter trials. No, when you encounter the trial of losing a loved one, for instance, there is going to be deep sadness. And there should be. It's not all joy in that sense of all. Jesus himself wept bitterly when his friend Lazarus died. So when James says, count it all joy when you suffer, he doesn't mean joy exclusively as opposed to any other emotions, but rather the all relates to intensity or sincerity. In other words, count it a sincere joy when you encounter trials. Or as the NIV puts it, I think better, count it a pure joy when you encounter trials. So we are going to experience other emotions when we walk through painful trials. Frustration and anger. Fear and anxiety. As I mentioned, sadness and grief, even shame and humiliation. Certainly the trial of leprosy has brought much shame to its victims. So there will be a range of emotional responses when we suffer, and that is okay. But incredibly, contrary to conventional wisdom, James here says, when you encounter trials, when you walk through suffering and pain, count it all joy. Consider it a pure joy. It's worth reflecting here a moment on the nature of this command, because my concern is that this command, count it all joy when we encounter trials, my concern is that it may have the reverse effect that James intended for it too. Because imagine you're walking through a painful trial, and I come up to you and say, hey, count it all joy. Come on, buddy. Nothing to be sad about. Nothing to be mad about. The Bible says, count it all joy. So chip her up. Be happy. Turn that frown upside down. But I don't think that's the spirit of this command at all. But sometimes I'll hear Christians who are going through a difficult circumstance, and they'll almost feel bad for feeling bad. Like, I know I'm supposed to be joyful. But again, I don't think that's the spirit of This command, as if we can just flip an emotional switch and all of a sudden we'll go from feeling sadness to joy or anger to joy in an instant. James is writing God's word, sure, but he is also human and he understands that we don't have complete control over our emotions like that, especially when we're walking through painful seasons. So, with this command, count it all joy when we encounter various trials. I encourage you to receive the command as a plant receives water. I encourage you to receive this command as a sheep gets a gentle tug from their shepherd. So, you know, when you feed your garden plants water, you come back to them the next day, and what's happened? Nothing, generally, right? That you can see, at least. There is this just slow nourishment that over time creates change and growth. Or when a shepherd is guiding his sheep, generally speaking, he doesn't at least always, I imagine, whack them with his staff right away. Instead, oftentimes there's a soft but firm guidance toward the right direction. Well, I think those are helpful ways to view this command. Count it all joy when you encounter trials. James isn't in our face, shouting us down, forcing us to change our emotional state as if that were even possible. Instead, he's trying to slowly nourish us, gently guide us toward a frame of mind and heart whereby we can view our trials as an opportunity for joy and not just endless misery. And so likewise, brothers, sisters, I urge you, when you encounter various trials, as you feel the painful effects of life in a broken world, consider it all joy. When your job is wrongly taken from you, when your financial resources are dried up, when your physical vitality starts to fade, when anguish fills your soul, when misery surrounds you, consider this a pure joy. This may be the opposite of everything you feel. This may be the opposite of conventional wisdom, but such is God's word, right? It often confounds us. It often confronts our conventional wisdom. Count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. So to embrace God's purpose in our pain, James shares a command, count it all joy, and he shares a reason. Trials produce Steadfastness. Trials produce steadfastness. So in verse 3, James is going to share the reason why God's people can count it joy when they encounter trials. He says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for, in other words, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James says that when we encounter trials, when we experience seasons of suffering, our faith is tested. And that word tested could also be translated refined. Our faith is tested through trial. Our faith is refined by the purifying fires of suffering that we go through in life. And James says that these tests and this refining process produces in us steadfastness. They produce in us a strength and endurance that we didn't have prior to. Trials produce steadfastness. As the great philosopher and biblical theologian Kanye West said, "That, that, that, that don't kill me will only make me stronger. Trials and steadfastness according to James and according to Kanye. Because Trials and suffering, they take us to our edge. They get us out of our comfort zone. They take us to our breaking point, and it's only when we get out of the status quo, get out of our comfort zone, that we can get stronger and go past our edge. It's exactly what Jesus was doing with Peter on the boat. He was taking him out of his comfort zone. And it's much like exercise and working out. If you just do the status quo of physical activity in life, then you will not get stronger. You will stay the same. No, if you want to grow, if you want to increase your strength, you've got to push yourself. You've got to wear your muscles out, which then enables them to rebuild themselves Even stronger, as it's often said in gyms and on sports teams, no pain, no... There it is. James is saying something similar here. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces an inner strength and resolve that you didn't have prior to and you wouldn't have otherwise. You know, oftentimes when we suffer... Our focus is on our circumstances, right? My health is gone. My money is gone. My loved ones are gone. These are all external painful circumstances. And they are truly painful. James is not denying that. And we shouldn't either. We should show compassion to those who are suffering. At the same time, James is trying to gently, graciously, shift our focus from what's going on with our external circumstances to what God is doing in our inner person. So it may be true that suffering has ruined your circumstances, but it can also be true that God is maturing you as a person irregardless of your circumstances. So James gives us this encouragement, this reason, Why we can consider our trials joy. Because your trials are producing in you steadfastness. Your trials may have taken away every external good, but they are producing in you an inner fortitude and strength that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Here's another way to think about it that I find really helpful. And there's biblical precedent for this. Both Romans chapter 8 and in John chapter 16 they liken our suffering in life to that of labor pains of a birthing mother so the scriptural writers urge us to view our pain and suffering in life to that of the labor pains of a birthing mother so think about it obviously labor pains are truly painful that's why we have birthing technique or breathing techniques That's why we have epidurals, because it is a lot of pain involved in labor pain. However, we view labor pain differently than we do other kinds of pain, right? Because labor pain has the glorious purpose of producing something new. Labor pain has this glorious purpose of revealing this new life to the world. So labor pain is pain. It is not fun, I imagine. Certainly doesn't look fun from my experience of watching. But we are able to view labor pain with a totally different perspective from other pains because of the great purpose involved in labor pain, bringing a new life into the world. And so Paul in Romans chapter 8 and Jesus in John chapter 16, they both say that all of our pain can be likened to labor pain because all of our pain, the various kinds of trials we go through, they are all producing something new. They are creating something new in us. Namely, the virtue of steadfastness, inner resolve, Endurance that we didn't have prior to and we wouldn't have had otherwise. Brothers and sisters, count it all joy because your trials are producing steadfastness in you. Your painful seasons are stretching you, challenging you, and ultimately growing you, strengthening you. The command, the reason, and finally, the encouragement. Through this process of testing and refining and growing in strength, the encouragement is that you will be made whole. You will be made whole through this process. Look finally at verse 4. Your trials are producing steadfastness, and let steadfastness... Have its full effect in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James says that as you embrace God's purpose for you in your trials and you grow in steadfastness, then you will be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I prefer, along with many others, to translate this word perfect here. Instead, as whole. Because oftentimes when we hear the word perfect, we think absolute moral perfection, never sinning, ever. And that is not possible in this life, nor is it exactly what I think James has in mind here. Rather, by perfect, I think he more has in mind us being integrated. Us being made whole, or as he also literally says here, being complete. So next week, Lord willing, we'll start to see that James brings in this idea that because of our brokenness and sin, we are divided within ourselves. We are divided within ourselves. He talks about us being double-minded in verse 8. Instead of being single-mindedly devoted to the Lord, we are split within ourselves. Part of us wants to follow God and part of us wants to do our own thing. Relying on ourselves. But James says here in verse 4 that as we embrace God's purpose in our pain, we are perfected. In other words, we are made whole, we are made complete, and the fiery furnace of our trials purifies our faith and commitment to be zeroed in singularly, wholly in God. That's his encouragement that as you embrace God's purpose in your pain and let steadfastness have its full effect, you will be made whole. You will be made complete, singularly devoted to the Lord. And then he adds, lacking nothing. You will lack nothing through this process of testing and refining and growing in steadfastness. Man, I wish it could be the case that all of the growth we need as a church could be accomplished through me standing up here talking and you guys sitting out there listening. But it is not the case. And sadly, in a broken world, the change we need must come through a process like this. But James's encouragement is that we will be made whole, lacking nothing. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, author and pastor Tim Keller tells about a man in his church. And this man was going through the difficulty of losing both his family and his career all at once. And Keller doesn't mention the specific circumstances of why he was losing them both at the same time, but both his family and his job were dissolving before him. And as Keller was talking to this man, the man said this to him, quote, I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need to get through. But you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Man, that is so well said and such a powerful truth. You don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. It took this man losing his family, took this man losing his job, it took him losing everything but Jesus to then realize that Jesus was all he needed. He lacked nothing. That's exactly what James is talking about right here. Embrace God's purpose in your pain let steadfastness have its full effect on you and you will be made whole in singular commitment to Jesus because you will have learned that Jesus is all you need. Through trials, you will be weaned off, relying on anything but Jesus because Jesus will be all you have. And so James says, you will lack Nothing. You will lack your job. You will lack your family. You will lose your money, your health, your dreams, whatever. But you will lack nothing because you will have the one thing you need, Jesus. Friends, God has a purpose in our pain. The purpose of strengthening us. The purpose of making making us whole in our commitment to him. Tragically, in a fallen world, this is the way it has to be. The growth we need and the purposes God has for us can only be accomplished through trials and pain in life. Again, I wish it could happen through me speaking sermons and you listening to them. But tragically, in a fallen world, this is the way it has to be the growth that we need and the purposes God has for us can only be accomplished through trials and the pain of life. So we've gathered this morning to sit under God's word, to allow him to teach us and guide us in these ways. But now we want to give you an opportunity to respond. So Haley is going to sing this song over us. And I encourage you, if you know it or if you can follow it, feel free to sing along. But this song is a prayer. And whether you sing or just listen, I just encourage you to make this a prayer for yourself. That through your pain, through suffering, God would create something new in you. Your circumstances may never change. They may never be what you want them to be. There may never be something new in your circumstances. But the prayer is that something new would change in us. New strength. Deeper faith. A more singular commitment to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we lament that it must be this way. That there has to be pain, sadness, shame, fear, death. We, like Jesus in Gethsemane, say, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. And yet, Father, like Jesus, we too, we know what must be. We must embrace the cross. We must die to ourselves. We must die to the world. We must suffer. And so, Father, I pray that for Woodside Lapeer, for every saint here, that steadfastness would have its full effect that none of our suffering would be wasted. But through every trial we walk through, you would refine us, grow us, stretch us, change us, increase our love, increase our compassion, increase our strength. Fulfill your purposes for us, God, even in our pain. And Father, we cling to the truth that we will be made whole. We cling to the hope that you will finish what you've started and one day, everything, everything will be made new and every tear will be wiped away forever. So anchor us with hope even as we continue to walk through every trial. Father, I pray this for your people here and around the world.